Then they gave people the hammer and they said, that robot is inferior. Kill it. Kill it. And they counted how many times people smashed the robot with the hammer and how they felt about smashing the robot. Hello, everyone. In the last episode of the Strzelka podcast in Russian, we talked about artificial intelligence and architecture. Today, in the Strzelka Institute podcast, we will be talking about technology, futures, and robots. Welcome to the lecture by Ilan Urbash, professor of robotics in the Robotics Institute in the School of Computer Science in Carnegie Mellon University. I'm going to talk about robot futures and about where I think technology is headed and why society needs to begin having a serious discussion about the future of technology and how it can change society. But I have to start with a story, and it explains why I wrote the book. Here's how the story goes. Imagine if you drained Lake Erie completely dry, and on the first year, you put one drop of water in Lake Erie. The second year, you put two drops of water in Lake Erie. You know where I'm going now. The third year, you put four drops of water in Lake Erie. After 15 years, what do you have? Nothing. You have a very dry lake bed. After 25 years, there's some water in the bottom, but it's nothing like Lake Erie. After 30 years, it's full, completely full. And the number of drops in Lake Erie is equal to the number of neurons in the brain. So at this point, you're supposed to go, wow. So in 30 days, we can make AI because we can fill up Lake Erie in 30 years. This argument from the singularity crowd is about the idea that because computers are becoming faster, exponentially, doubling in speed every 18 months, whatever it is that makes humans intelligent can be mimicked in a fairly short amount of time. And I have some problems with this. The first problem I have with this is the idea of exponentiality itself. The suggestion is the speed of a computer is somehow proportional to how close it comes to being a human. And that's not true. The second problem I have with this is much more major. Whether or not we're able to make robots that are indistinguishable from us in 100 years, or a thousand years, the interesting part is the transitional part between now and then. Because that transitional part is an age during which robots are going to do more in our world and interact more in complex ways with us, and they won't be like us, they'll be dumber than us. And so we face a future of mediocre robots doing a mediocre job of taking over our jobs. And that's the period of time I wanted to write about. So this book is about before Lake Erie gets filled. I'm going to split my talk up into some major themes that represent steps forward 10, 20 years into the future and then beyond. The first one is new mediocrity. And let me go straight into what I mean by new mediocrity. The idea behind the word mediocrity, which is kind of an invention, I've seen a few other people use it, is that the way media is presented to us, and in particular, the way media senses us, is changing dramatically. The thing that you need to learn and know about robotics is that the sensors we use in robotics are improving quite nicely. Not exponentially, by the way, but nicely. And there's a future coming when robots will be able to see our eyes, our lips, our nose. They'll be able to know where you're looking, everywhere. They'll be able to tell if you're smiling or frowning. And there's a little 2001 clip that you could watch sometime, because in that movie, Kubrick has a robot reading somebody's lips. That's coming too. There's researchers working on that at my own university. So there's a future when, from a perceptual point of view, the sensors in our world will all know what our behavior is. They'll know how we're walking. They'll know when we joke and laugh with somebody, and when we're serious, when we're crying, and what we're saying. So what does that mean from a robotics point of view, when sensing systems around us can do this thing that until now only humans have been able to do, which is to interpret our behavior at a fairly deep level? I'll give you an example of what it means. It's sort of an absurd example, 
but it already exists, so it's real. So in America, the car is your home. You live in your car, you eat in your car, you sleep in your car, sometimes. What's going on here is McDonald's will cook Big Mac. They'll cook so many Big Macs each hour so that when you pull up to the drive-in window, if you order a Big Mac, hopefully there's one that just got cooked. But if they don't serve it to you in eight minutes, they have to throw it away. So they have to guess how many Big Macs to make every hour based on their prediction for how many people are going to drive up and order a Big Mac. Hyperactive Bob is the name of a software program. And this software program has a camera. It looks at the cars pulling into the drive-in window and into the parking lot. It learns over time which type of car and which type of car owner orders what. So big Chevy Bronco, definitely two Big Macs, large fries. Little Toyota Prius, fish sandwich. No kidding, they actually do this. So what's happening? Your behavior is feeding a machine learning system that's perceptually seeing you in your car, deciding what you're about to order, and then sending the order to the short order cook. So you still get your sandwich when you get to the window, but they lose much less money. So your behavior is essentially being mined for profit. Is it bad? Is it an invasion of privacy? Well, yes and no. It's not really invading your privacy personally very much, but it is predicting how you're going to behave, and it's making them more money than it used to. So it's interesting. Here's another example of mediocrity. In the old days, if you were designing a website and you needed a color on your website, what would you do? You'd order the color from a graphic designer. You'd hire a graphic designer, somebody who's gone to an excellent design department, and you'd tell them about your website, about the feelings that you want, the emotions that you want on that website, and they would create a treatment for you. Here's your envelope, here's your stationery, here's your website, here are all the different windows you have with this color treatment and the font treatment that you want. That's graphic design. It's human creativity for the purpose of communication. Well, that's not how Google chose blue. And this cover of my book is a representative of that that I painted. So Google had a graphic designer. And they went to the graphic designer and said, we want a new color blue. By the way, I'm talking in an odd way because of translation. I don't usually talk like this. Sorry. So the graphic designer came back and said, here's three excellent choices of blue. And the owner said, what do you mean, three choices? We asked for the right color. And he said, yeah, I'm an artist, and these are the three best colors, so why don't you choose one of these colors? And they said, forget it. They programmed the computer system to automatically generate 41 colors of blue, spread evenly across the chromatic spectrum. And every time you go to a website for Google, they would flip a coin, a 41-sided coin, and they choose one of the colors and show it to you. And they can collect 200 million statistics on 200 million people using their website with different colors of blue. Then they can choose the color that has caused the best behavior. And you can define behavior however you want. It could be time on task, how long people spend on the website. It could be number of clicks, maximize the number of clicks. Could be money, maximize for people who spend the most money on the website. That's how they chose the color. I find that fascinating because the idea that used to be an artistic expression of color becomes crowdsourced to you, just like looking at your cars. We decide by looking at human behavior what the right choice is aesthetically. By correlating correctness from artistry and communication to a quantitative value that we can measure. That's a pretty big shift. So we're headed into an age when robots will be able to collect information from us, where by robots I mean not only these systems online that already do that for you, from Facebook to Google to eBay, but in the physical world. When you're walking down the sidewalk and you look in the window of your favorite department store, do you look at the clothing? Do you see the price and then laugh and tell your friend, that's way too expensive? Do you look at the price and tell him, that's not bad, if only they had it in green. Imagine a series of cameras record 
all of that and take it a step further. We have interactive advertising coming, like Minority Report. So it's advertising that has a camera built in and it can present digital ads to you like this plasma screen. This is interesting because when it sees you approach, it can go, hmm, I think he likes cameras. I'm going to show him some Nikon DSLRs. When it sees you approach, it goes, hmm, he's wearing a nice Lumix GH3. I'm going to show him adapters for underwater photography for the Lumix. So it can customize advertising to each person it sees. And they can do this on millions of people. And as they do this on millions of people, they collect information for every demographic, for every type of person, young, old, richly dressed, poorly dressed. What causes them to pay more attention to the ad? Because remember the camera's there. They can see your eyeballs, they can see your expression. So what you end up with is a world in which the entire system of marketing is reactive to you and optimized to you massively. Massive surveillance is certainly where we're headed. And what's interesting is from a robotic point of view, massive surveillance will understand us better than it does now. Today it's used for us as consumers. So primarily our job is to buy, to make, get an app and use it, to buy something and eat it. And we get agency, we get the power to decide what to do. The transition that we're gonna see from a mediocrity point of view that's interesting is this, funny transition. Reactive systems will market to us using surveillance so that marketing will be isolated to the individual. It'll be responsive to you. It'll be designed over time through millions of interactions to make it almost impossible for you not to buy precisely what I have to sell because I'll message it exactly as you wish to hear. You stop being a consumer because the way they're doing that to you is precisely by mining all the information that you produce by behaving. You already behave, right? I'm not taxing you but I'm gonna ingest it all. I'm gonna use it all to learn exactly how to do this. That's something humans could never do before. And that's interesting because they're not paying you a cent for that consumption of your information. And the interesting oddity about this is, if this becomes really, really effective, then you stop having agency. If they can really nail it as advertisers, then you buy precisely what you, it has been decided, should buy because of whatever they have in surplus in the warehouse. And so in a way, you lose your sense of agency precisely because the world has learned to read you and to push your buttons exceedingly well. Now, from a philosophical point of view, there's some names for this. One name is cognitive labor society. It's a word that economic philosophers use for the idea that the labor we do becomes cognitive labor, our own thinking and behavior, and that that will become monetized by industry for profit. A second word for it is disenfranchisement. As you spend more time providing production out, but only in small parts, you lose sight of the comprehensive window of work you're doing. It's as if you work in a factory making one small part, never seeing the whole system. You lose enfranchisement, connection to the wholeness of the object that you're creating, which in this case is markets. I'll give you one final example from this. It's from reCAPTCHA. How many people know what reCAPTCHA is? Sounds like a lot of people don't know about reCAPTCHA. Let me explain it to you. In America, if I go and buy concert tickets, I have to prove that I'm a human being because robots will try and buy concert tickets online. So they will show a word that's very squiggled, very tilted, and I have to type the word in and then I can buy the concert ticket, right? Probably those of you who know reCAPTCHA know that those words aren't just randomly generated for you. The New York Times newspaper has newspapers that they're scanning for computers to read. So what they'll do is take the words the computer can't read and so when you enter in your guess for what that word is, you're helping, along with an army of other people, for the New York Times to digitize that word. Now what's interesting is the New York Times will pay Google to digitize the New York Times. And the marketing agency selling the tickets will pay Google to stop robots. And you will do the work of digitizing the word and sending some money to Google and sending some money to the New York Times because then they sell the digitized articles. Isn't that cool? Now, a month ago, I went with my wife to reCAPTCHA 
to buy concert tickets. And it didn't show me a picture of warped numbers. It showed me the picture of the front of a house. And you couldn't see the, the house number perfectly. It was dim. And it said, what's the number? So what's going on? Well, I guess they've gotten hired by another company, a mapping company, who wants to know the number of every house in every picture. <laughs> and so now I'm supposed to type in the number of the house so the mapping company knows the number of the house. I couldn't do it. It's interesting that the text, in the case of New York Times, is abstract enough that I could just do it to get the ticket. But I couldn't look at the house and knowingly type the number in, knowing that all I'm doing is enabling them to know something that somebody may not choose to make public in a digital format. It's very odd, isn't it? That's something we're going to see more of. And it changes our relationship to the cognitive labor that we're part of today. So that's mediocrity. The second topic I have for you is robot smog. You know what smog is. It's this combination of fog and dust that can be potentially harmful. Now, robots are not potentially harmful. They can be quite good, and I'll talk about those at the end. But I didn't write the book to talk about good robots. I wrote the book to talk about potentially negative consequences. So, smog. Something that's interesting about robotics is that the fundamental problems governing the forward progress of robotics have a lot to do with mechanisms, motors, basic analog sensors, circuits and computation, representations, but ability to have compact motors that have elasticity, like our arm, that can move very lightly, that you can push on, but they can lift very heavy things. These are very challenging ideas in robotics. And we're just now starting to overcome them after many decades of work. They're still expensive, but that's going to go down quite rapidly now. Now, what happens when you make robots that have elastic, muscle-like actuators? When they're expensive, the Department of Defense pays for them, by the way, not uh, consumer economics. But what you get are things like this. This is eight years ago, so these are much, much better today. Now, you don't usually get to see robots kicked around by humans, but you also don't normally see robots that can so elastically respond to being kicked by humans. And now you can. Today, that's in the military world, but it's going to come into the consumer world. And what's interesting is that a 200-kilo robot can run around much faster than you today. In fact, there's one that can run faster than a cheetah, the fastest land animal in the world. So where does it take us as robots aren't simply like software systems? If you think about the smog we have in our computer world, those of you who are old enough to remember computer systems in the days of Mosaic, or uh, a little bit after Mosaic maybe, your entire screen was the thing you wanted to look at, right? The entire screen was the website. Then gradually, maybe the right side had some advertising, and then maybe the bottom got some advertising. Then maybe you got some advertising that flashed across the whole screen and you had to exit it, remember? And what about if you buy a really nice big flat screen television for your home? Then you go home and you watch something and the whole corner becomes an advertisement. Why did I get a big screen? I could have masking taped that part. What's interesting about robots is that that idea of invading our fovea, invading what we care about with other things on the side can come. You can take a walk in the park, somebody can be running, but they could have the running robot with them to keep pace, you know, and to make them safe. And their running robot could be a robot this big. What do you do? You're walking the other way, and there's a runner coming towards you, and a very large robot running towards you. Do you jump out of the way, screaming? Do you stand your ground, because the robot will go around you? What do you do? We're not trained in how to deal with these robots. So as they enter our world, at first they'll be extremely unfamiliar. And that design question is really challenging. And what's interesting is, eventually, you won't tell the difference between the robots and the people. But it's not going to be when they're flesh like this, when they're naked. You're not going to see sunbathers on the beach and wonder if they're a robot or people. Petman, same company, outstanding robot. It can squat, it can stand on one leg, it can walk, it can do all sorts of things. And when it's wearing that suit and moving, it's creepy. It looks enough like a person that you wonder if there's a person inside. So you might start seeing a fireman in a suit. 
you don't know if it's a robot or a person. You might see heavy equipment moving. You won't know if the person's driving it or if the person's sitting there and the robot's driving it. So there's an interesting boundary question we face as we become more and more challenged in identifying whether the world around us and the agents in our world are in fact robots or people. One interesting thing about research in the United States is that there's a national contest called the National Robotics Initiative Contest, making robots like these, actual physical robots, and the job of the challenge, the contest, is to have robots that can use human tools. You could make robotic jackhammers. You could roboticize the valve, the steam valve. They're not doing that. They're making robots that have enough degrees of freedom in their hands and legs to use the tools that we have, our jackhammers, our backhoe, our trench digger, and yes, our machine gun. That's interesting, because philosophically it suggests the idea that we make essentially everything in our world have multiple aspects of control authority, through human authority and through robot authority. It's a way of focusing the confusion that we can have on the problem, <laughs> stacking our potential for confusion. What's interesting about robot smog, this is the high-end research, the expensive part of the process. That's not what's really fun. What's really fun is to think about what happens when amateurs, when non-professionals, start to use robotic technologies that are becoming ever easier to invent new kinds of robots for society. I don't know how many of you heard about this, but as you know, 3D printing is becoming more and more prime time, and that's, I believe, the first working gun made on a 3D printer. It started a really interesting debate. If 3D printers can be purchased, and you can make a gun with a 3D printer, does that mean you can't buy 3D printers anymore in places where guns are outlawed? Well, no, you can buy them still. But it's an interesting problem, right? As we have the ability to create from basic mini factories, we lose control of our ability to regulate. I'll give you one more example of that, Bumbot. A guy named Rufus Terrell returned from war, and he bought a pub, a bar. He wanted to make it an Irish pub in Atlanta, Georgia. The problem he had was a number of homeless people would sit on the sidewalk in front, because the pub was right on the edge of a rich and a poor neighborhood, right on the boundary. He didn't like this. He was not a roboticist, but he read Make magazine, and he got his old smoker for making smoked meat. And he got a high-pressure water cannon, and he got a floodlight, taillight from a car, and parts for building high-power remote-controlled cars. And he built himself a remote control, telepresence, water cannon with lights. So he would drive up the sidewalk and threaten the homeless people sitting on the sidewalk with a water cannon. And you can probably imagine what they did. They got up and left. This got a lot of press two years ago in America. And all the press it got was about how fantastic it was that somebody can now invent a whole new robot in their basement because it's become so much easier to invent something new. What the press didn't say is, this is interesting, the boundary between ethics and invention is evaporating. People can make anything they want. Then what's to govern how they make something that's ethically appropriate or inappropriate? How do we even have people think about the social consequences of what they make? Which I find interesting in this case. So it's interesting to also think about the early times in the web when Flash came out. And a lot of people used Flash, Macromedia Flash, to design really silly jumping and waving figures on their websites. So you'd go to a website and it was a blaze and little penguins running across the top, right? Penguins and birds. Now those times are past, right? The ethics of design moved on. But we're going to have a new macromedia flash world in the physical world. Maybe you'll go to your vegetable garden and there will be three solar dancing robots dancing in your beanstalk. And you have to move them off your beans. I don't know. But you may face this weird explosion of diversity in robotics. And it can lead to beautiful things. It can lead to robots that do things that roboticists never thought of. It can also lead to very annoying robots that get in your way when you're trying to relax and have an intimate conversation with your girlfriend. 
dehumanizing robots. So this is about the idea of what happens as people interact with robots differently from the way they interact with people. My first experience with this was when I built a robot at Stanford University, and I turned to pay attention to somebody who had a question about the robot, and my robot was down maybe a tenth of a kilometer away, moving. And then I looked back, and there was a guy with a large cowboy hat and cowboy boots on, kicking the robot as hard as he could, and his girlfriend had stopping it from escaping. And I watched this kind of amazing, and I ran, right? I ran to stop them, and as I ran up to them, they saw me running and they started moving away. And he said, see, honey, I'm smarter than the robot, which is debatable in that case. It's interesting because he would never do that to my child. He would never do that to a dog or a cat. But somehow the robot invited him to kick. What's that all about? And what does it mean when robots do induce that kind of behavior as they become more and more social, more human? So here's an experiment done in New Zealand. They gave a number of people, that robot on the right, it follows light and the flashlight in the middle. And they told people, shine the flashlight and make the robot go around in the room. And people had some fun with it, it was pretty cool. Then they gave people the hammer, and they said, that robot is inferior. Kill it. Kill it. And they counted how many times people smashed the robot with the hammer, and how they felt about smashing the robot. This is an actual experiment, done in 2002, in our universe. What's interesting about that is, people did smash the robot. They'd kind of giggle, <laughs> and smash it. And it goes to demonstrate that they've first, you know, they have first seen that it's reactive. Like a lobster, right? Reactive to light. But then they're willing to smash something that's, that's physical. So I immediately think of self-driving cars, of course. It's pretty funny. They have a giant blow-up balloon car. I didn't know there were giant blow-up balloon cars. So if it hits it, you don't have an accident. So the self-driving car is an interesting example because it's the same machine in the same ecological domain as the machine we have today that humans drive. But the way you treat a real car today is modulated by the fact that you know there's a human being inside of it. You don't kick a car as you walk by. And if you curse at the car, you're actually cursing at the person inside the car. So there's specific times when you will insult a car for a reason. When you're at a stop sign and you're coordinating what to do with somebody in a car, you use hand signals, you make eye contact. What will we do? when we are in a world where self-driving cars and normal cars are mixed together. If a self-driving car is trying to park in a parking spot, will you just take the parking spot first? Or will you be polite to a car that has no humans in it? The interesting part is what happens over the course of time as we treat self-driving cars differently from human cars. Will it bleed into the way we treat regular cars with humans inside of them? How will the social interaction we have with people change when robots start looking more like people or interacting more socially like people? Those are questions that for urban space matter because in the urban space, you're gonna be facing interactive technology and natural human technology at the same time. And I believe we don't compartmentalize very well. I believe we'll see a poisoning of the interactions with each species, especially as robots become more human. Ishiguro, this researcher in Japan, calls these robots geminoids. It's a class of robots that are made to look exactly like their creator. You can probably tell which one the robot is. But you know, five years from now it'll be even better, right? And this is where I introduce another idea, because he uses this for meetings. When he's here giving a talk in Moscow, he uses the Geminoid to run his group meetings in Japan. So it's there, and he controls it from a special control station here. Now, the interesting question is, he uses this robot today completely in control mode. So he's in authority, right? So if somebody on the other end says something to the robot, they know Ishiguro can hear them. It's a vessel. But these robots also need to be able to walk from place to place in the office building. And he wants to program them so that you can click the destination location and the robot will walk there and say hello to people. 
but he doesn't want to control it. He doesn't want to move its legs and arms and say hello to people. Let the robot do that. When it gets to the next meeting, then I'll step in and actually have the conversation. So now the same robot is sometimes in the control of a human, which means when you interact with it, you're interacting with a human being, and sometimes it's autonomous, which means when you interact with it, you're interacting with a piece of software, and you don't know which it is. So that's interesting. How will you behave? Will you start treating unknown robots as if they're always controlled by humans? Or will you devalue your relationship with robots until you're sure that there's a human behind them? I don't know, but we're going to face a series of consequential interaction decisions that we didn't face before. And of course, robots don't have to look like humans. You can telephone an aircraft company to make a flight reservation. And today, Delta Airlines can say, please tell me the city you wish to fly to. And when you answer that question and say, Tokyo, Sometimes they take the sound file and send it to a human who says, hi, I'm glad to hear you're going to Tokyo. Here's your options. Sometimes the robot takes the word, figures out the right answer, and tells you your options. So when you're talking, you don't even know if the voice, the production of your sound, is actually on its way to a human being or not. And on the phone, as the speech synthesis systems become better, it'll become harder for you to distinguish when you are actually talking to a human and when you're not. Again, an interesting question about the ethics of how we'll relate to robots and people in society. So here's my last negative uh, view of robotics. Then I promise we'll do one that's very positive before I scare all of you away. Attention dilution disorder. There's a disease in America quite common called ADD, which doesn't stand for this. It's about being distracted often, not being able to concentrate on one thing. What's really funny is I was giving this part of my speech last week in a meeting, and during the meeting where I was describing how using smartphones, people are never really paying attention to one thing at one time anymore, because they can be in a lecture and tweeting at the same time. Well, guess what? Two people in the audience tweeted about the fact that I was saying how you can be tweeting during a conference. That was pretty cool. So the idea here is robotics actually gives us a new kind of affordance, further diluting our attention in a way that's both exciting and scary. So I'll give you some examples. One of the directions robotics is going is telepresence. The idea that, for example, in a hospital that's remote, your doctor can come to the hospital through a robot instead of driving there. And so the doctor's face is showing, and you're visiting with the patient, and the nurse is doing the local things. And yes, they're working on the arm control. Eventually, the robot can take your heartbeat or your blood pressure itself. Or they roboticize your bed, so that as you sit there, the bed can take your heartbeat. They can already do that with accelerometer strips on your back, and it can take your blood pressure. What's interesting about this is that the doctor that you're interacting with is through a robot, and the doctor is in a remote location, which by nature means that their full attention is not on you, because they're physically present somewhere else. That means they could be twiddling a pencil, tying their shoes. They could be checking their email on the side while checking on the patient. It's the same thing that happens to you when you call somebody and you hear clicking in the background. They're typing. Telepresence will make that easier. Take it a step further, though, when telepresence is mobile, when the doctor can be walking down the street in Moscow and treating the patient at the same time, when their facial gestures are being measured by a camera and then reconfigured on the computer screen there with an appropriate background a doctor's office background, not the cars in the back of their head in Moscow. Now they can do a lot more things. They can sit in a cafe, drink a cappuccino. Smart AI can remove the cappuccino. It cannot carry the cappuccino gesture at all. Doctor's looking at you the whole time, interested, and you're sitting there drinking cappuccino and asking the questions and looking at the girls and having a good time. That day is coming. It's telepresence. It's how telepresence will happen. What it will mean is that people can be truly in multiple places at once. But you won't stop at two places. You'll keep going. What if you could visit two patients at once? What if the robot could ask the questions you're going to ask at first anyway? And after all, you ask the same questions at first. How are you? 
Are you doing better than last week? It's the same first questions. So while I'm finishing off with this patient, I can super pack my schedule and start on patient number two and three. And maybe when the robot can't answer the question itself, then it asks me for help. Yeah, so I just get involved when my robot can't do its job for me. So what happens is what I call CEO of me. You become a manager and you can take on more and more robotic existences. So your one 70 year life becomes like 300 years of life because you have four robots in four places doing your bidding for you. You've become a company and you're the company president. The very desire to have mobile technology integrated into our face will drive us in a direction where we can view multiple places at once, express ourselves in multiple places at once. And the best example on the screen, you're too far away to see this, but the baby in the bottom right, the legend says six generations after the introduction of Google Glass. And the baby has been born with eyes that point in different directions. So its right eye looks up and to the right at the screen, and its left eye looks straight ahead. So there's a, the Darwinian evolution of Google Glass, which I thought was pretty clever, so I put it in there for you. So we're headed in a direction where it will become a desirable station for us to have agents, to have impact in multiple places at once. Today, people who do that are called billionaires. They have personal assistants. The personal assistant tells you what to do. Sir, it's time to go to your next meeting. You have to say goodbye now. No, sir, you have to get in that car. We have your schedule over there. Sir, I've already told your next three meetings that you're running 10 minutes late. They know. That's the future we're headed to, except we don't need the physical human personal assistant. The robots will do that for us. And people will accept that. And in a way, it will make all of us more productive. The bad news is that increased productivity will become an assumption, just as it's assumed that when you have a business, if somebody needs you and they email you an important question at eight at night, you're going to answer them. You're not going to wait till nine the next morning to answer it. That assumption of connectedness that you'll have to multiple places will increase in all places. And I believe the danger with this, the negative consequence is it can make more superficial the relationships we have with any one place. Now the good side I promised you. What can we do? This is a horrible portrait of robotics. The book tries to paint fictional stories every 20 or 40 years forward, combined with nonfiction about the kinds of technologies that are being developed that can take us there. But then there's this question, what do we do that's different from this? And just some simple examples, but all the examples have one theme. I think the theme about robotics that's exciting is the idea of empowerment. The idea of robotics as a technology that can provide for us more sensing and more information that allows us as communities, as groups of people, to make decisions that improve our community, to improve the urban landscape, to improve the social fabric of our society. That, I think, is really interesting. Some examples. Really simple example. This one's already commercial, or it's going commercial. It's called Freedom Lift. One big problem for people in a wheelchair, in an electric wheelchair, how to use a car. They have to have a special van where you can park the electric wheelchair on the back of the van. The door opens electrically, wheelchair comes up, then you drag yourself through the middle of the car to the front and get in the seat. It's a very long, very difficult process, and it's embarrassing. This is a robot wheelchair. You go to the driver's seat, and you drag yourself up to the driver's seat. Then the wheelchair, by itself, backs up, goes to the back of the car, and loads itself. Pretty clever, huh? It's got sensors, it detects obstacles, it talks to the car's lift, so the lift comes down to receive it. It lets you know when it's locked in place and you can drive away. Very simple example, but it's an example that actually gives people power. It enables them to be more free. Uh, another really obvious example is robotic prostheses. I always tell people who ask, what's the first big revolution in robot? That we're going to lose our wheelchairs. We're headed toward a world where people that use wheelchairs will be able to walk on robotic legs or exoskeletons, depending on their disease. And that means you'll be able to look at them eye to eye, not like this. And it means you can move around in Moscow, up and down all those stairs, and have a real walk with them. And that's a major change in their quality of life. If you think about the amount of time it takes somebody in a wheelchair to get around a city. This technology is huge. It's called targeted muscle re-innervation. And it's an interesting concept. It's the idea that by measuring 
large muscle groups in the human body, we can actually train people to activate different muscular regions of their body to control different motors in a robot. This is a really big deal. Before this, you could make a hook with one degree of freedom. And when you pinch your shoulder, the one hook opens and closes, and that's it. Once you can do this, you can have four, five, six, seven motors on a single robot, and you can learn to simultaneously control all the motors. Now you can do complex motions through space, which means a conductor can conduct, a drummer can hit the drums, all of which require multiple degrees of freedom controlled at the same time. So the interface between robot and human flesh is improving dramatically today. And that's a very exciting development in terms of empowering individuals with robots. I'm gonna briefly tell you about another set of projects that are about empowering communities of people. It's about 30 researchers designing new robotic inventions, but they're each designed with a specific community of practice from somewhere in the world, explicitly to empower them for some specific reason. So I just wanna give you some examples of what this idea looks like when you do community robotics for empowerment. My first example is actually about photography. One of the interesting challenges in photography is that in the real world, we have detail that's explicitly important to us. For example, um, if I'm a wildlife ecologist, when I look at the rainforest, I don't just see a rainforest. I see it as a representation of all the animals, all the plants, the biodiversity. If I'm an architect and I look at a site, I look at the type of soil. I look at the type of ground cover and plants that grow. I don't just look at the picture like a postcard. And the problem with regular cameras is they don't capture that information. They just give you 25 or 30 million pixels. But I need a trillion or a quadrillion. I need lots of pixels. So we made a robot that any camera fits on and it moves the camera and takes hundreds of pictures with the camera and puts them together into a very, very large picture. That's interesting because it changes what people do with the picture that results. Some examples. They're designing a new environmental center and water purification site in Mali. But they want to be able to design it taking into account the watershed, the river, the slope of the ground, the plants and trees around the area. So they use the Gigapan, the robot here, to take a massive picture. Then they have the town council meeting where the leaders of the town come together looking at a printed out panorama that has so much detail that they can actually work on the panorama making decisions about the work site, about how they're going to architect the landscape of that zone. Same exact technology in the rainforest. You take a picture of a deciduous forest. In the old days, this group in Canada would take a picture of the forest with a regular camera. Then they would send an army of students into the forest, trampling things on the ground, to count all the spiders and types of leaves, ants, other insects. They take one picture, and in the lab, they can zoom in in that picture and identify all the insects spiders, ants, and leaves. So the picture changes the relationship they have to the place because now they have a record of that place that's explorable, that has hidden within it the information that they will scientifically need in the future. So that's Gigapan. And it's an example of what I think of as an empowering technology. Very recently, we did something similar for another kind of information that's hard to understand normally about time. Time Magazine released this for us. It's called Time Lapse. If you Google search on that, I'm sure you can get to it. We took every picture of the Earth taken from the Landsat satellites from 1984 to now, and we stitched them together into 1.8 trillion pixel frames. And then we made a movie from it, from 1984 until now. So it's a movie where each frame of the movie is 1.8 trillion pixels. That's big, very, very big. So this movie, while you're playing it, you can zoom in and out. You can go forward and backward in time. To be more general, you can explore in space-time 
with this movie. So you can go to a place or a time and then explore through a tunnel of space-time and see what happens somewhere. So you can see Moscow growing. You can see Las Vegas, Nevada growing and Lake Mead shrinking. And you can see the correlation between the two. You can see deforestation in the Amazon. And that one is incredible, I tell you. You zoom in and you can see roads being built. And then you can see roads coming off perpendicular to the original roads, like a fishbone pattern. And then the trees disappear. Then you can back away and realize, wait, there's hundreds of roads. Then you can back away and it's thousands of roads. Then you can back away and you realize you can see the eastern and western edges of South America and all the trees are gone. So it allows you to appreciate the scale of devastation precisely because you can zoom in and see it in great detail. Without detail, scale has no meaning. And it is precisely because of that scale that the detail makes meaning. And actually you have an anniversary coming up for Gagarin who said this exact thing from space. He talked about the idea that the detail he got from space of the Earth made him consider geopolitical boundaries differently than he did being on the Earth. You need that massive change in scale. And this is one direction for that. We also work on environmental technologies that are basically massively networked robots that image the world, but not with camera technology. Some trash in a river near my house. This river has so much fecal matter in it that if you step in it and play, you'll get a rash on your skin. Because the sewage overflow system for my city, when it rains, is mixed sewage and water drainage, and it dumps the sewage raw into the river. But people don't know how to measure the water quality. What's more, the rural area around my city and across Central Africa has water quality that's changing dramatically quickly because of drilling. People are doing hydraulic fracturing to pull out natural gas. But when they pull out the natural gas, they bring up salts. And the salts, with bromines and with radioactive chemicals, in, go back down into the watershed and then go down into the aquifers and then the well that they're using to feed their cattle is poisoned. And the only time they find this out is when the hair falls off the cow or when their own hair is still falling or they get a rash on their skin. So we wanted people to have an earlier way of measuring this. And more importantly, we wanted people to visualize changes in water quality so densely, so completely, that it's like that picture of the earth. You can zoom in and over time see the water quality change, correlate it with the changes in industry and understand how industrial activity is directly impacting water quality. So we made a really simple device in this case that has a five-year battery in it. We call it Flamingo. And it sits in the water and measures every 15 minutes the water quality for up to two years to five years. And you walk up to the river whenever you want with a little remote control and you click it and all the data goes up to your remote control. It's using a 802.15.4, Zigbee, for those of you who are electronics engineers. And then from here to the internet. So the idea is then people are empowered to take an inexpensive $100 device, adopt it, adopt their local watershed, measure the water quality, and help create a global map of water quality so that we've actually memorialized the idea of water changes. And we can review it and look at patterns and start to understand what's happening. My last example is the very simplest. The big problem we have in the US is that people have become very literate with technology. They, as babies, know how to go to the app store and get an app on their mom's iPad, play with it. But you know what they don't know how to do? They don't know how to make an iPad, and they don't know how to program an app, and they rarely learn. In other words, people have become consumers, incredibly refined consumers, because this is what companies have tweaked for us. Without understanding how technology works well enough to imagine hijacking that technology and using it for advocacy, and that's a shame. What we want instead is for people to become what we call technologically fluent. Fluent instead of literate. In other words, instead of just knowing how to use, learn how to invent and create something new that nobody's made yet using technology that you can buy. 
That's fluency. So how do you get people there? Well, step one, start with four-year-olds. So we started a program in schools in Pittsburgh, and we're going to take it national, with the simplest, smallest pieces of electronics, blade switches, LEDs, light bulbs, alligator clips, wires. And instead of hurrying through a technology where the children have to build something fast, fast, fast and do a test, with the same few wires, motors, and lights, they spend six months experimenting, sketching, drawing, coming up with a language for how it works, then using that language to teach each other how it works. What happens at the end of this process is that they develop an amazing level of fluency about the technology. These children can be challenged with a new toy, take it apart with a Phillips screwdriver, they open it up, and they can name all the pieces. There's the microchip, there's the LED, there's the switch, there's the light bulb, I bet you the power is going this way. And when you ask them about a toy and why it breaks, they have ideas, they have theories. They develop an internalized language for technology. And you can't do that with a shiny iPad. It's a sealed box that's white or silver, right? You can't see how it works. You don't build an understanding of what's inside of that in miniature. So this idea of slowing down education and using the very simplest technology to infuse in our youngest children the idea that they should be self-confident toward technology rather than think of it as a magic, magic inside that you don't break, you just use, I think that's probably critical to changing the relationship of power between people and technological artifact so that every time a new technology is born, we are users of it. Of course, we want more water quality meters and less bum bots, which means somehow people have to have the ethical framework to also think about how you can use technology to better society rather than to create division. That's more challenging, maybe. If you're interested in this whole area of discussion, I wanted to recommend some books to you. So I thought about what I think are the most interesting books. And I don't know if there's, these are available in Russian, but briefly, it's embarrassing to put it on there, but I did put my book on there because eight is a more even number than seven. Sorry, Race Against the Machine is beautiful. It's a book that talks about how productivity is increasing in companies, margins are increasing in companies, and even as domestic products go up, employment levels are going down now. So automation has reached an interesting tipping point where the level of automation increase has outstripped our ability to replace people's jobs with new jobs. The edge, if you will, of robotics capability is outgrowing the middle class's capability. And that book is really excellent in showing through charts how since mid-1980s the trend has reversed in a very bad way. Digital Labor is about this idea of the cognitive labor society. It's an excellent philosophical book about what it means for us to do free work on the internet that is the reason for the high valuation of companies like Facebook and Google. It is our work, our consumption and behavior that in fact controls their value. Cultural Boundaries of Science is an excellent cultural book about how scientists make decisions without realizing that the inventions they create have major downstream impact. And it gives some beautiful examples. The one on the right has one chapter that's really good, chapter six. <laughs> it's about the idea that big data and raw data is not unbiased and when companies use it, to come to a conclusion about marketing or politics, how they collect the data has a massive implications for what conclusions result from the data. This is by my friend Hans Moravec, I, Robot. Robot is a book from somebody who's in the singularity. And if you want to read a book from people who do believe they're going to be immortal, who do believe that Lake Erie will fill and we will all live forever, that's a book that really does an excellent job explaining why he feels that way. Now again, I disagree with him, but he would say if he's off by 20 years, he's only off by 20 years. It's exponential. One way or the other, we're all going to become immortal eventually. Wired for War is about robotics in the military, and Super Crunchers is about how companies are actually predicting your behavior using our behavior. 
So our behavior has become, in a way, a snake that's eating its own tail, able to predict the future rapidly uh, with more and more effectiveness. And with that, I'm done. So I hope you read some of those books. This lecture took place at Strelka in 2013. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts for this and previous episodes. Thank you, and see you soon.